live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kaylee Clark. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio on Sunday evening. And what a glorious day it is, finally. Spring has sprung, hopefully. This evening we're joined by Jade Pierce to talk about evidence-informed teaching, why it's so important and how we can make it work in our schools. It's going to be a fantastic show. We're really excited. So hopefully you can join in, tune in, tweet us, call in the show and get involved. Live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kaylee Clark on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Oh, how glad am I to finally see the sunshine. I know I always start with the weather. I think it's a Cumbrian thing, though. I don't know if it's British or just Cumbrian, but we have had some absolutely awful weather recently, and it is just such a pleasant experience to like have a genuinely sunny day and it actually feels really warm I saw my first lambs today as well that's always a highlight of um, the beginning of the year for me is when you first see the little lambs in the field and we have a lot of sheep where I live so you know there there are a lot of them around but um, yeah I saw my first little fluffy herdwicks in the field and that really feels like spring is here Um, I felt really sorry for the poor things I'm glad I haven't I've only just seen them now because if they come out any if they if they've been around any sooner, I mean, you just feel really sorry for them, don't you? With the with the the cold weather that we've had. So um, as I said on the intro, uh, we have got Jade Pierce on the show this evening. There she is. She's just logged in, so we're going to invite her as a speaker. So yes, we're just going to get straight into it um, and dive straight into the conversation. Jade, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? I can loud and clear. Oh, that was a. I've, after the panic of not being able to get going on the show. <laughs> There's always that moment, isn't there, when the technology doesn't keep up with your intentions. So yeah, that was a really nice, smooth call in there. So thank you very much for joining us this evening. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh no, it's a pleasure. And this interview's obviously been in the works for a little while, hasn't it? Because I think I contacted you last year um, and then we finally managed to get a date in the diary for today. So it yes. feels like it's been, yeah, I mean, it feels like it's been quite a long build up to this, but I am really excited and, and hopefully we're going to have a really great show. So um, like I said, we're just going to, um, I do have some adverts that I need to play. So we're just going to play those really quickly and then we'll dive straight into the conversation. Is that okay? Absolutely fine. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, right, we'll get that sorted. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. 
Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Upland, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. There we go. Right. Um, are you still with us, Jade? I am, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, right. So let's get straight into it. For those of those of our listeners who are not who don't know um, who you are, can you please just give us a bit of an introduction and sort of your journey in education? Yes. So um, like you said, my name is Jade Pierce and most people know me as Mrs. Pierce on Twitter. Um, currently, I am an assistant head teacher in charge of teaching and learning and CPD at a secondary school in Staffordshire. I'm also um, an evidence lead in education for the education, in, sorry, for the um, EEF. So um, that involves going into other schools and running courses and that kind of thing to try and spread evidence informed practice. Um, and then my journey in education, I think it's been quite a straightforward journey, really, to be honest. I'm at the same school now um, that I actually trained at and then was an NQT at. So um, I did two years as a classroom teacher and then I got um, a job as a head of year. So I was head of year 10, actually, and then put them through to head of year 11. Then we moved over to a health system. So I became a head of house um, and then transitioned over to the curriculum side and became head of department and then um, assistant head. And I think this is about my sixth year now as an assistant head teacher. So that's me. Fantastic. So altogether then, if you don't mind me asking, how long have you been at the school that you're at now? How long have I been there? Sorry, just yeah. quite yeah. No, yeah, um, yeah. This I think this is my fifteenth year. Right. So that's I mean, just because this is I am literally halfway through my very first year of teaching. So um, but I'm a career changer. So um, it's a bit of an unusual situation because I'm going into a school where the pe- where people are like, you know, five, six, seven years younger than me, <laughs> but they've been doing teaching for probably that amount of time longer, if that makes sense. So um, it, it's it's interesting to see how many people move around a lot versus the ones who, who decide they, they really love the school that they're at and they stay there. So what was the, what what was your motivation? Like, I suppose, I don't know how to phrase what this. Ma- what's made me stay? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, why do people move? Is it, is it, 
is it career progression like in other industries or is it just you know is it is it more to it than that why do people move why do people stay well i can first of all say that when i worked at my school um everyone had been there for like 15 years or something like that and i remember thinking oh my god how can people go to the same place of work every day for 15 years how boring (laughs) but honestly it's just such a lovely school and it's got such a lovely culture and i know some of this kind of stuff we'll speak about um in the show but i think sometimes you you find a school that that is that is special or different whatever word you want to describe it and then you think you know why why would you leave and that's definitely that's definitely one of my reasons for staying and the other reason for staying is that I've had really good promotion opportunities so whilst I've been there for 15 years um this is probably the longest that I've ever stayed in one kind of position as in six years yeah. as, an as an assistant head teacher so um I think that's why I've stayed why people leave I think is a mix um in terms of not being happy at their school in terms of either wanting promotion but um, it not coming up in their school or maybe wanting to um, mm-hmm. wanting to work in a different context and see what it's like. So I think there's probably different reasons, really. Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I am fascinated by the answer because, you know, when, when you go into a new um, place of work, regardless of whether it's a school or an office, whatever it might be, you tend to judge it, you know, if people have been there a long time, you tend to think, oh, it must be a good place to work. But I suppose the flip side of teaching is is as one of the things we're going to come to talk about later. If you've got teachers who've been in the same school, in the same role for a long time, you know, does that maybe throw up some barriers in a way? You know, if, if you do want, if the school does need to change or if, 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 if new people come in and want to make some positive changes, what do you think? I think it depends on the school, I think, and, and why people have stayed. So, like I said, in my school, we've got a lot of teachers who will stay mm-hmm. for a prolonged period, but it's because they like the school. It's not in any way made them resistant to change, which I think is your you're kind of hinting at. And probably yeah. actually one of the reasons why they have stayed is because of the quality of the professional development and they feel like they're getting better and better at their job. Yeah. Um, but then I can imagine a situation where if everyone's been there for years and years and years and no one's really challenged or tried to improve things, you could get in that situation where it's a bit like, well, we've always done it this way. It works OK. It doesn't really mm-hmm. change. So I think it probably depends on the reasons why people have stayed and, and what what has gone on in recent years. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right then. So um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk, obviously, we're here tonight to talk about evidence informed practice and evidence informed teaching and education. So you've obviously got a book in the works at the moment. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I would do. Yeah. Go for um, it. So I haven't got a release date yet. I'm hoping it'll be around August or September this year. So not too far away. Mm-hmm. And it is called What Every Teacher Needs to Know, How to Embed Evidence-Informed Teaching and Learning in Your School. And it's made up of three parts. Um, so the first part is what does the research say? And it is a summary of what I think are 20 of 20 of some of the most important um, papers um, about evidence-informed practice. And really, this part came about because I was on a podcast, actually, the Tea and Teaching podcast, and um, they were asking me, right, if you want to become evidence-informed, what should you read? And I realistically, I think they were trying to get me to narrow it down to, you know, one or two or three papers. (laughs) And I I remember thinking, like, there's no way that I can possibly do this. And then I thought, I wonder how much that would be to read. So I'd obviously read all the papers that I thought, well, these would be really important got them all together as paper copies and it was you know a huge stack and I just thought oh my god that is overwhelming and one of the questions I always get asked about evidence-informed teaching and learning is where do you start you know if, if you're an assistant head teacher and you're starting to look into evidence-informed practice to um, kind of start to change that across your school or if you're a teacher who wants to make your own practice evidence-informed where do you start and I thought oh my god that's 
a, a huge amount to read just to get kind of on top of yeah um, feeling like you know enough um so that's kind of the idea behind the first part of the book that there's these 20 papers that um that I've kind of I've, I've tried to summarize and pull out the, t- the key takeaways for teaching and learning just so people don't have to read um, everything themselves or can look at a paper and my summary and then think oh yeah that's definitely something that I'm interested in and then can go away and, and have a look at it in a bit more depth so that's the first part the second part is um, what does evidence-informed teaching look like in the classroom so there I've taken what I think are six of the kind of most important or widely needed um, elements of evidence-informed teaching and learning. Um, so I've got explicit instruction, managing cognitive load, questioning and checking for understanding, retrieval practice, spend, spacing and interleaving, and feedback. And I've tried to bring together all of the research on each one of those and look at um, what does the research actually say, kind of a summary, and then what does this look like in, in, in teaching or in your school? So um, to try, yeah. if you were looking at one element of evidence-informed teaching and, and learning, you should kind of read that chapter of the book and, and that would help. And then part three is um, how can schools develop an evidence-informed um, culture? And that's all about becoming an evidence-informed school. So looking at um, what makes effective CPD, um, recruitment, performance management, quality assurance, all that kind of thing and then some case studies from different schools and how they've kind of got along their journey to being evidence informed fantastic oh it sounds brilliant because again as a new teacher coming into the profession something that i've struggled with personally and, and i'm sure i can't be alone in this is just like you say it's knowing where to start um there's so much thrown at you in those you know in your training year and in that initial year coming into t- in you now that you've got the ECF framework, I mean, that is very much evidence-based or that's the idea of it. It's based on, um, you know, the EEF research and Rosenstein's principles and things like that. But if you want to do some wider reading, it is a case of where do you go first? Which, which bits do you pick from? How do you actually sequence it all? So, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping, and I, I think that's a really fair point, and, and especially like you said, as a new teacher, or even someone who's wanting to start to get interested in evidence-informed teaching. You know, we've got teachers who've been in the profession for years and years and years and and are still at the start of this journey. So I'm hoping it will be helpful for that. Great. Well, it's certainly on my list. I'll be recommending it to my school CBD library for sure. Um, So this next question, and it might seem really obvious, but there's there's been um, this a lot of talk about evidence-informed practice and the need for it so what do we actually mean by that and and the reason I'm asking is because has teaching not always been evidence-informed where yeah yeah, you know yeah good question the way we do things what is that based on if we're not already evidence-informed Okay, so I'll go through the first bit of what evidence-informed practice is, first of all, and then I think I'll come back to, so what did we used to do? Yeah, um, there's probably so, two questions there, sorry, yeah. yeah. No, no, that's fine. So evidence-informed practice, I would say, is this based on this idea that there is research and that there is evidence around our best bets for teaching and learning. So, for example, we know that if you're a novice and um, you've got a pupil who hasn't got a really um, good base of prior knowledge about a topic, the best way to introduce new content to them is to um, use explicit instruction rather than say discovery learning and that we know we have to manage cognitive load and that we now know retrieval practice is really important for long-term retention so research has shown us that, that there are these best bets however it's super important to realize that evidence-informed practice doesn't say that you can take these best bets and that's it 
you know, they're these silver bullets and they're perfect and, and they'll, they'll 100% success in every setting. It's actually a combination of those best bets from research, um, teachers' experience, so your view on what works well with your teaching, but then also context and the idea that what works well in one school or for one group of pupils or for one subject won't necessarily work in the same way in, in, in another school, class, subject, etc. So it's that combination of the research best bets, teachers' experience and context. So that's what it is. Um, I, I think that teaching has definitely not always been evidence-informed. So I did, did my PGCE around about 15 years ago and um, it, at that time the idea that discovery learning was the best thing and that if you wanted pupils to remember something they had to find out the information for themselves was really prominent the idea of learning styles was really prominent and the idea that you had to tailor um, your instruction to be visual auditory and kinesthetic and you had to get children moving around the room and all that kind of thing mm. um, was was supposedly research-based now I think these ideas are um, things that either have been um, based on teachers' experience, and we know that learning is is often um, the kind of little learning happens often in an opposite way to what we we think it would. So, for example, we would never think that making learning more difficult through a desirable difficulty like spacing would lead yeah. to better learning, but it does. You know, it goes against what we think would happen. And then also because I think there's been lots of um, theories like Gardner's theories of multiple intelligences, which basically said. Some people have logical intelligence. Some people may have more kinesthetic intelligence, um, and that got transformed into something that was meant to that, that was about teaching and learning. Well, actually, it was never meant to be about teaching and learning. So I think it's it's either because we just use our kind of gut knowledge and experience, and that always that isn't always what's best for learning, or yeah. it's been in the past where we've taken things which haven't necessarily uh, been meant to be applied to teaching, and we have applied them to teaching. So that's probably why I think we haven't been evidence informed in the past. Yeah, again, that's really interesting because in my previous life before I became a teacher, I remember undertaking um, training programs where we were we were taught, you know, what what type of learner are you? And it came in with that, you know, are you visual, audio, kinesthetic? Um, and, and it you know seeing the parallels there, it's interesting because at the time when you're learning that you think, well, yeah, you know, I do find it easier when I'm presented with a visual representation of the written words and that helps me process things um, but obviously it's kind of been misconstrued or it's been it, it's been used in, in a way that isn't ultimately effective um, but is is the sort of the or you know like the um, I'm not quite sure which one it would be but it'd probably be visual visual and, and um, auditory is that not what we've now come to think of as the dual coding you know the okay the, so yeah yeah so, so I, I can see why you think they're similar the difference is that learning style said that each person learns better if if information is presented in a certain way so mm -hmm. if you're a visual learner you will learn better if, if implement if information is presented in a picture or a diagram and if you're an auditory learner you will learn better if information is presented as written text or a spoken word if you're mm -hmm. a kinesthetic learner you'll learn better if you get if you introduce movements to learn stuff that's learning styles the um what you're referring to in terms of dual coding or maybe um, representing information in terms of a picture and spoken language is because of the modality effect. And that comes from cognitive load, which basically says our working memory has an auditory channel for written text and spoken language and a visual channel which picks up pictures, graphics, etc. And mm. that if we can present information in both of those ways at the same time, we kind of expand the amount of cognitive load 
that our working memory can handle at one time. So similar in that they talk about the ways that information is presented, but completely different in that um, learning styles would have said it's different for different people and you're going to learn better if you present them in certain ways, where the modality effect says, actually, no, it's best for everybody if we present them in a picture and spoken language where appropriate to the material. Right, yeah, because going back to that, that experience that I had when I'd had training in, you know, like a more of a, um, a business setting, if you like, a, a commercial setting, the, the kinesthetic style was the difference between somebody who learns by being told what to do, somebody who learns by being, um, you know, draw me a diagram of what I need to do, and somebody who learns by actually doing it. So yeah. it doesn't matter if you tell them, they have to physically get their hands dirty and that's how they learn the best whereas that obviously doesn't really translate to the classroom does it I mean fair enough if you if you're doing a practical subject then of course it would but I can't imagine applying that to the English classroom for instance because that's my that's my subject so how did that actually where, where did that come from you know was that based in research that was just blown out of proportion and, and used in the wrong way or what happened there? So I think that this comes from the learning pyramid, which is, um, you know, you will remember, I don't know, 10% of what someone tells you, 20% of what you read, and then all the way up to 80% of what you do. And it was this idea that if you wanted to get students to learn something, or if you want to learn something, like you say, you have, you have to do it, you have to be involved in it. Um, and actually, again, it's, it's very similar to learning styles in that it is something that has been completely taken out of context. So it was never linked to learning. It was actually meant to be about um, our experiences and how they move from an abstract experience to a concrete experience. Yeah. Not, nothing to do with how well we learn. The percentages were never given in the original theory. It was never, it was never represented as a pyramid or anything like that. So I think it's something that where, where someone's had, you know, mentioned about one thing and then it's been applied to learning when, when it probably shouldn't have ever and was never meant to be applied in that way. Um, so another reason why we have now these myths that have become kind of common knowledge, but actually our misconceptions and are, are wrong. Mm. So for the more sceptical teachers who might be thinking that evidence-informed practice is simply a reincarnation of what has gone before um, and there you know anyone who might be thinking oh well yeah but how do we know that these are these strategies are going to work when the previous ones have been debunked because um, because e even in my short time in teaching since I trained versus now that I'm in school um, one of the ones that stood stands out to me is the almost some pedagogy that that some schools were using mm -hmm. um, when I was in one of the schools I trained in, so this was just last year, I was told that all of the resources that I had, all of the PowerPoint presentations, had to have three differentiated learning resources, and that is how I would achieve my teacher standard about differentiation. Yeah. Um, and even at the time, I thought, surely this isn't this isn't right, you know, because basically we're we're just telling kids that not all of you are going to get this, and how demoralising must that be? for those people who think that the sum um, learning objective was beyond them, you know, how are we helping them be, you know, be the best versions of themselves and be, be you know, get the best learning experience. Yeah. So when it comes down to things like that, how do those sorts of strategies, how have they come to be in teaching? You know, how have they kind of proliferated, if you like? Yeah. So I think that this has come from, I suppose it would, it would be what we call a lethal mutation where we have a basic idea of something that is probably quite good in terms of 
um, trying to respond to the, the capabilities of different learners, trying to give mm -hmm. more support to learners that need it and trying to really stretch um, what we might call our, our, you know, our highest learners. Um, yeah. But that, that then kind of mutated into this idea that you have to provide three different worksheets and three different types of tasks and objectives yeah. that are almost some. Um, so I think it's about really making sure you understand that initial recommendation of let's say responsive teaching and why we want to make sure that we respond differently to different learners what was the idea and the reasoning behind that and then how has that then led to the almost sum and if you can't see the proper link between it it's probably not the best implementation of the idea i think that and then i think in terms of these kind of what we now see as new practices actually they're not new at all so things like retrieval practice has mm -hmm. been supported by studies for over the last 100 years more than that so space space practice and interleaving the studies that date back over 100 years that will have looked at retrieval practice it's that thanks to things like research ed um, and the kind of teacher research movement that's happening especially on twitter at the moment and over the last 10 years i think they've come to the forefront um, but they're not actually new. And, and also, I think teachers will often say, well, I do that already. I do retrieval practice. Mm. I always go over what, what I, um, what I you know, have done previously. And it's this idea of, yeah, that's fine. But do you do it always with corrective feedback? Do you do it always individually first? Do you do it um, spaced? Do you do it in, in all the ways that we know make retrieval practice most effective? So I think there's two kind of different things um, there in terms of, New, new practices or, or things that we've always, always done, which one practice can be seen as both of those things. So what you're essentially saying is that we, we're looking at streamlining things now. So looking at the, the, the research and the evidence that we know is genuinely accurate. You know, like you say, the, the studies that have been taking place over years and years, things that previously might not have been called retrieval practice, but when you break them down, you go, that's what it is. Um, and streamline it and going, right, this is the things we absolutely know work, but not only that, let's look at how we can implement these this research in a way that we know is the most effective way. Yeah, and that's crucial because obviously these um, these trials aren't normally done in a classroom setting and the recent EEF report in onto cognitive science spoke a lot about how there's actually quite few studies that have looked at these cognitive science strategies in a classroom with a teacher in a normal class. So we're still trying to look at evidence for actually are they effective in a classroom with pupils of all ages across all subjects, etc. And there's definitely gaps there still. But then obviously because because research is academic, it's it's we've got we've got to find of this bridge between um, what the research has shown us to be most effective or is likely to be the most effective and then what that looks like in the classroom. And also, I think it's really important to realise that our understanding of these research-informed practices is developing all the time. So, yeah. for example, we launched retrieval practice at my school about six years ago. And at the time, all the writing on retrieval practice and all of the kind of blogs and all that kind of thing were about factual knowledge. And it was all used to remember, I don't know, dates, names, definitions, stating advantages and disadvantages, that kind of thing. And then um, in, I think it was... I think it was 2020, I can't remember the date, um, Pujar Agarwal released a paper about Bloom's taxonomy and retrieval practice, basically looking at if you only do factual retrieval practice, does it improve your ability to do higher order um, kind of skills from memory or, or higher order retrieval? 
Um, yeah. And she shows that, no, it doesn't. And if you only do factual recall, your factual recall improves. But if you're asking people to explain, analyse, evaluate that content, it wouldn't improve their ability to do that. So we now know that it's really important to, yes, do factual recall, but also do higher order retrieval practice. So and that's that's only really happened in the last couple of years. So that's kind of kind of come into been been. Um, shown in research and then therefore come into our um, practice in school so it is something that's kind of evolving all the time I think. So what do you what do you mean by higher order retrieval practice what's the difference? By by higher order I mean um, you might ask people to explain something to analyze something to compare Mm -hmm. and contrast to evaluate so it's not just factual it's actually I know this knowledge but actually our retrieval practice has also got to be I mean, I can explain something. I can compare. So it's the application of knowledge. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So actually you're having to apply what they know to a specific scenario or a specific context. Yeah. 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 So just just talking about Bloom's, because Bloom featured heavily in my teacher training, um, but not so much am I seeing him in the early career framework. So I'm not entirely... um, sort of up to speed with with the with what we think about blooms now but i, I realize it, it, it did come in for a bit of criticism in terms of that what um it it's soundness as a basis on which to, to teach teachers and yeah. the things that teachers need to be focusing on in their lessons so what's yeah. your opinion on that so i think again the reason that this that blooms has come into criticism is it's become seen seen as a hierarchy as in knowledge is on the bottom so it's least important and then you've got yeah. your your skills at the top um you know you evaluate etc that that are seen as therefore being harder and actually I, if you if you read about it i don't think it was meant in that way i think the the takeaway that i take is that you can't do these higher order skills analysis compare contrast evaluate if you haven't got that base of really good knowledge so it's the it's this idea that actually you can't analyze something, you can't evaluate something if you don't actually know enough about that topic in the first place. So to me, um, it is applicable because it's showing us that that knowledge base is is really crucial before we then ask pupils to go and um, do these higher order tasks and and really use their knowledge and develop their understanding. So I think that. The, the reason why it's become out of fashion is because it was used as right first of all my first learning objective is for you to know this then it's going to be for you to analyze yeah. this then it's going to be and it was it's just been used in the wrong way but actually i think the basis of the idea that knowledge has got to be the basis of these um higher order mm-hmm. skills i suppose is quite a um a nice idea and that's that you just brought back a flashback from um a conversation i was having with a teacher when i was in my training because that was exactly what what the how they wanted us to interpret the the taxonomy it was you know your first learning objectives is is what are they going to know at the end of the lesson and then it was almost like lesson objective two and three was what will they have done with that knowledge by the end of the lesson and and as as we know now you know with the with the more up-to-date research unless they're actually actively retrieving that information and practicing it and you know more than just practicing it but um repetitively practicing it almost you know over and over again until they've got that proficiency and fluency um that's not the right way to use it (laughs) and that doesn't actually achieve anything in that lesson really yeah yeah and that's the kind of distinction between learning and performance and this idea that you might be able to do something in a lesson or, or demonstrate understanding in a lesson, but that is um, performance because it's after initial instruction and actually learning yeah. doesn't take place until much later. Or you can't judge learning until much later because it's a change in your long term memory. So I quite like yeah. that distinction. I think that's quite important. 
And it's a, that was a real light bulb moment for, for me, sort of, you know, learning about how this works. So I think I was listening to um, Kate Jones on a podcast talking about retrieval practice. Um, and, and that's exactly what she said was, you know, if the, if the students get to the end of the lesson and they can tell they, they can retrieve what the lesson learning objective is, you think, well, of course they can, because you've literally just taught it to them. But yeah. it's can they retrieve it the next day? The following week in a month's time and that's when the importance of the you know the principles of instruction and and the the, the continuous practice comes into it so yeah fantastic um right so you mentioned earlier before um about the, the tea and teaching podcast and I, I did i listened to that in in preparation for the show and you talked about the culture um of a school and why and, and why the culture is so important to establishing an evidence um informed basis for your practice so so please can you talk a little bit about that you know what do we mean by an, an effective school cult culture for effective evidence-informed practice yeah really good question and I think this is really important lots of people will listen to podcasts and that kind of thing and lots of people message me and say like oh how did you set up your teaching and learning group and that's amazing that people want to take these ideas and do it in their school and that they want to start making their own practice or their school practice evidence informed but I think it's really important to point out that you can you can take all these steps that you know I might have written about in a blog or that'll be in my book but actually there's lots of things about your school's culture that have to be in line for these things to work so for example I would say first of all we've got you've got to have a culture of trust um, where teachers trust senior leaders where teachers trust one another and where senior leaders trust their teachers as well um, if you're going to de develop an evidence-informed kind of practice in your school and that's because if that trust isn't there teachers won't be willing to trial new practices or they won't um they won't give any credibility credibility to what senior leaders are saying because they don't trust them they won't feel um the ability to be able to have a really honest conversation with someone and saying actually i'm really struggling with this with retrieval practice can you come and watch me and see what i do and then give me some really honest feedback to help me move forward none of that can happen if we don't have a culture of trust um, I'd say the other thing is that we've got to have a culture which prioritises the development of all staff so that everyone feels that it's really important that they improve. Um, so that can be achieved by things like senior leaders modelling their own professional development and talking about their own professional development with, with other people. You know, I say to my staff all the time, there's loads of things that I'm working on in my teaching. You know, I've been doing teaching for a few years. I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable about it. Um, but there's still loads of things that I, that I know I need to improve on. So I think kind of setting that expectation that everyone's going to get better is really important. And then things like um, making sure we give teachers time for professional development, that we give them the resources, that we pay for them to go on external courses if we can do, that we um, try and reduce workload from co other competing areas so that they can actually can have time to, I don't know, read a research paper or attend a, a teaching and learning group meeting, all that kind of thing. Um, in terms of the culture of trust, I think we can do that in lots of different ways as well. One thing that's been really important for this kind of developmental culture in my school is um, reduced monitoring. So we no longer have any formal um, lesson observations. We don't evaluate the quality of teaching and learning. We don't evaluate the quality of work in books or anything like that. We've moved completely over to kind of um, formative lesson drop-ins where we pop in, see what's going on, talk to the kids. And it's done very much in a way of what's going really well, what best practice can we share across the school? What as um, a department does this department need to work on? Or actually what as a whole school do we see as a weakness in our teaching so that we can feed that forward into CPD? So I think that kind of um, that kind of practice is really important to developing this, this culture that's going to support an evidence-informed school. And then giving your teachers autonomy is super important. So 
what I mean by that is two things. One, letting them have some autonomy over their own CPD. So yes, we've got these whole school teaching learning priorities, but actually are there things that, and time that we can give where they can pursue pursue their own interests and set their own uh, development goals and then also I mean autonomy over how they introduce evidence-informed practices so for example retrieval practice we know is super effective so we want all the teachers in our schools to be using retrieval practice but actually that will look very different in art to PE to English to maths to science mm -hmm. it'll look very different in year six to reception and teachers are best placed to decide what that strategy is going to look like in their classroom with their pupils now that does mean that you've got to be really clear on your kind of um, what we now call active ingredients those elements of the strategy which must be abided by so like I spoke about earlier retrieval practice you should give corrective feedback it's got to be spaced it should always be from memory you should have an opportunity to do it on your own first all that kind of thing but actually what the, the format that, that takes in your teachers lessons is decided by them um, so I think there's lots of things that you need to be aware of that go along with this evidence-informed culture uh, also, yeah, there's evidence-informed culture. It's not merely just, I'm going to set up a teaching and learning group, the kind of operational side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And everything I mean, everything you've just said, it, it resonates because we've got a teaching and learning group at our school. And I, I joined that as, you know, at the first meeting in my first year because I thought, all you know, a few people said, oh, it's probably too much extra work for you at this point because you're an ECT and you've got all this other stuff to do. But I thought, no, because I, I recognise that in order to make my teaching better, I'm going to have to engage with people who know more than I do. Um, but but also, but also, where is that information coming from? You know, because obviously straight off PGCE, you've done a lot of reading, you've done a lot of research, um, and you sort of understand why you're doing the things you're doing. But then you go, especially if you go into a new school, it's how does that school do it? What what's their approach to the um, to the research, and how are they implementing it? And you, you can't change anything unless you're a part of that process, I suppose. So um, it, it is a case of get involved if you want to see the changes that you think are necessary as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I have teachers who say, "Oh, I really want to do this across my school, but I'm just a classroom teacher." And I think go go anyway you know I got involved in teaching and learning way before I was kind of part of the senior leadership team and we have teachers now in in my school who will you know email me an article or come and see me and say I've been thinking about this or I think we should do this a little bit differently and I love that that we've got you know as many people as we can um so so definitely yeah get involved like you say yeah and that's that's again a really crucial point I think you just made is this idea that if you are just a teacher as in you are you don't have any TNL responsibility, sorry, um, TLR responsibilities, or uh, you're not SLT, you're not an assistant head, it doesn't mean you can't lead that in your school, potentially. I mean, not necessarily anybody, everybody wants to lead it, but just, you know, it, it's, it's not like you have to have been teaching for a certain amount of time or have a certain status within the school in order to, to put these practices in place, or at least show the benefit of them. Yeah, exactly. So you can obviously control depending on your school you can control what happens in your own classroom but then yeah. you know you can also go along to your teaching and learning group and we have um nqts now early career teachers in their first year of teaching in our teaching and learning group and i'll come with loads of brilliant ideas and so teachers who have been teaching three years four years ten years so yeah i think i think it doesn't really matter and and again that's something that you, that's a culture that you've got to build up in your school though as well but it's not necessarily seen that oh well they're really experienced they must be really good no no everyone can improve but also we might 
might have teachers that maybe aren't as experienced, but they've still got brilliant ideas and, and really good knowledge and, and ideas to bring to the table. Yeah, fantastic point. Yeah. Um, so in, in an ideal world, we, we would all work in one of those schools. But on, on the for anyone who's, who's listening, who thinks this sounds like a great idea, but is, is probably a bit doubtful as to whether or not they'll get that support and buy in from senior management. What's your advice for becoming an evidence informed teacher in your own classroom if you perhaps don't have well even even just from a, a, a case of improving your own practice maybe i don't I don't mean the, you know to to limit the the answer to this, but how do individual teachers look to become more evidence informed um, regardless of the school setting um so I would say first of all, you need to uh, be knowledgeable about what evidence-informed practice is and um, you can do that by listening to shows like this one and listening to podcasts and reading books and reading blogs you know that all, all the things that that we know that help us to uh, reading papers all the, the things the things that help us to improve our knowledge of what good good evidence-informed teaching looks like and why these strategies are effective and how they're most effective and all that kind of thing and then I would say just choose something and don't choose 10 million things you know you can't you can't transform every single element of your teaching practice overnight but choose one or one or two things that you think will make the biggest difference to your teaching and to your pupils and then have a go at um, implementing some things and see what happens and then you might think oh that format really didn't work I need to change that or yeah I really like that so I can build on that now so that that's what I think is important in terms of um your own practice and then see if you can get feedback now that might be that you can get a colleague who's also evidence informed in your school to come and watch you and say yeah this is this went really well or to have a look at your plans or schemes of work whatever it is that you've been working on it might be that you have to film yourself because there isn't anyone there that, that can pop in and watch you so you might do that um i think there's ways around it and then um i think it's about going to going to your senior leaders and, and your your um, line manager and saying actually this is what I've read I've read this paper on the weekend or I read this blog on the weekend and it was really good and um, can I talk to you about it and you know try you can you can try and build that momentum yourself as well I think fantastic yeah that's a, that's good tips so um yeah the uh sorry I'm just I'm just looking through the the I'm, I'm, I'm making notes at the same time as what I'm doing. So <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest because um, I am shamelessly going at using this as a kind of um, personalised question and answer session that's going to help me and what I'm going to take to my um, to my to school with me next week. Um, so obviously, if while we're talking about teaching and learning groups in schools, and and the, in, you know you've got a research group in your school. Um, what do you think is an example of good practice in a in a research group? You know, what is the ultimate objective and, and, and how do we know if it's really working in our schools? So I think the ultimate objective of all CPD is to improve the quality of teaching and learning to therefore improve people outcomes. It's got it's got to be that. And I think that teach, any research group and anything like that, it's about um, engaging in research evidence to therefore try and change practice and therefore improve teaching and learning in your school. Um, and there's lots of different ways that I think schools do that. We've got three teaching and learning groups no, well, three research groups, sorry, at my school now. So we've got a teaching and learning research group that meets to discuss a piece of research. We've got a teaching and learning inquiry group, which is um, a group of teachers who have one focus throughout the year. So our focus this year is um, questioning and checking for understanding. And that's because we identified it as being an area for development for the whole school. Um, and in that, we do a literature review. So we all read something and discuss, all read something different and discuss it, kind of shares the workload in that way. 
and then right. we take we take two three strategies that we want to implement on our own teaching um, in before the next meeting and we kind of trial it make modifications think well this didn't work in this situation but it did work really well here or i found a way that works for me and my pupils and then we meet back up, back up and we kind of discuss this is what i tried this is what went well this is what didn't this is what didn't go well etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and then by the end of the year the aim is always to produce kind of a best practice document for staff and i found that really helpful because if you use it to and look at a look at a teaching and priority for the following year you've already got in my case like 20 members of staff now who are really knowledgeable who have all tried stuff in their own teaching who are across different subjects across the school so they can give help and advice to teachers when they come to try and implement it in their teaching so i found that really powerful and um, and then this year we've just set up a pastoral research group and that was because I was becoming very aware of the fact that I, I'm teaching and learning um, and so we had loads and loads of CPG opportunities that were about teaching and learning because obviously normally in a secondary school, probably the same in a primary school, the person that is in charge of teaching and learning is also in charge of CPD. So naturally all your CPD opportunities, and we, we give a, a huge range of CPD opportunities, but they all tended to be um, teaching and learning based and pedagogy based and I was kind of aware, oh, we haven't, we've got a really good pastoral team in our school we've got heads of house and assistant heads of house we, we haven't really got anything for for that side of professional development so um had that in the back of my mind and then um, sam crone who i follow on twitter and do quite a lot of work with he was saying that in his he's um a deputy head i think for um, pastoral care and he was saying that in his year team meeting the first thing that they do is review an article that they've read in preparation for the meeting and mm. i love that and it's this it sounds ridiculous because I'm so um, aware of evidence for teaching and learning, but I wasn't really aware of this huge body of evidence that exists around pastoral care. And we think, oh, you think pastoral care is more about experience and kind of learning on the job. And actually, it's not at all. It's really, really evidence informed. We're, we're at, in, in a really good position now. We've got brilliant books coming out or um, already out at the moment about pastoral care. There's loads and loads of papers. So we now have a pastoral research group as well that kind of reads um, pastoral papers, book chapters, that kind of thing, um, to develop our practice in that area. And I just think it's a really good way to look at research, look at best practice, discuss it with your colleagues. And kind of our, our last question in all of the groups is always, what are going to be the changes that you make for your practice based on what we've discussed in the meeting? So a really good way to... Um, keep making those little changes uh, over time, I think. Yeah, and just the fact that it has to be focused on action seems to be, you know, what, what sort of the nub of what you're saying yeah. is that it has to be a plan for something that you are going to do, yes. not just chat about something that you've read and that you find interesting and wouldn't yeah. it be good if we did this, yeah. Yeah, really important and actually really important with all CPD. It's really nice if you feel more knowledgeable and you feel more confident, but actually if that doesn't make any difference to your teaching practice, that hasn't impacted your teaching and therefore hasn't impacted learning or outcomes in any way. There's got to be that transition between I've done this CPD and this is the changes that I made, whether that's I started doing something, I changed what I was doing, I stopped doing something. But really important to always think about right, this is now what I know or whatever it is, understand, and then this is how it's going to manifest in my teaching or leadership yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think that is that is something where the, um, the early career framework, I think, falls down a bit because they, they sort of show you what to do based on the evidence or, you know, this is what it looks like, but they don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily translate into practices that you can then use in the classroom um or give you some ideas of how how to actually 
put it into practice. Um, whereas our school's trialing the great teaching the great teaching toolkit from the EEF at the moment. And although the the research that they're based on is fundamentally the same research, the the EEF version is is very much this is what we are going to help you put this into practice in your classroom. This is what it looks like if you do this in your classroom. Now, here's how you can adapt what you're already doing to meet this, to, to include these new ideas. And it, it's that translation from theory to practice that that is the stickler, really, for, for a yeah. lot of the research out there, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, because like it's, it's these theoretical ideas about how learning happens or how memory works or what we saw in a lab. And it's it's then saying, OK, so this is what we know about learning. How can we address that in a classroom um, and how, what might look like in different subjects for different age ranges, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's the difficult part. So I think it's got to be the, the theoretical base is really, really important, because if what we see in schools often is that a senior leader will come in and say, right, we've all got to do retrieval practice and you've got to do five questions at the start of every lesson mm. um, or whatever it is. We're, you know, we're going to do um, AFL. So you're all going to use lollipop sticks and not tell to help people or cold calling so we're not going to ask for any hands up and actually all of those examples are where we've misunderstood what the strategy is fully and why the strategy is really effective and then it gets implemented badly so you you have got to understand the theory and the active ingredients to be able to then say right well what what could this possibly look like and, and obviously that's a balance between theory and practice yeah and not just being a tick box exercise of to say well we we do retrieval practice we do space learning we do um, assessment for learning we do questioning and all that kind of stuff you, you have to actually show how it improves the learning at the end of the day as well isn't it not just do it but what what is the positive outcome of the things yeah. that we do how are we measuring it how can we tell that it's working yeah and why are you doing it and how do you how are you doing it most effectively because we can do retrieval practice but we can do it badly so we could do you know five questions where they're all really easy they're not challenging enough so pupils aren't really improving their memory it was stuff they knew already well that's actually just a waste of time yeah you're doing retrieval practice but it hasn't benefited anything or yeah. you could do retrieval practice where the questions are really well thought out they're going to help pupils overcome misconceptions they're going to be about the really tricky parts of the course it's going to be higher order it's going to make a difference to what pupils can do in the longer term what can they, they can remember in the longer term well obviously that lens really benef beneficial they're both retrieval practice just one's being done really really well and one is being done less well so i think that's really important that evidence-informed teaching is not doing these things it's doing them properly doing them well doing them most effectively yeah and and something that must be incredibly important to make all of this work is to make it subject specific as well um, because I think we, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but I was I was actually um, reading uh, Tom Sherrington's book on Rosenstein's principles in action. And one of the things he said was, you know, Rosenstein himself said, this isn't just a coverall blanket approach to teaching. This is, it has to be subject specific. It's not always going to be appropriate all of the time in every subject. Yeah. So just, just out of interest, is there research, because obviously this is quite, new in terms of thinking about teaching in this way is there research into specific subjects using these practices or is that still in the works so i think that lots and lots of the research um has been done in science and maths and uh just because i think of have 
it, it seems to be easier applied in that way and kind of easier knowledge to test, I suppose. Mm. There is more and more research being done all the time about these strategies in other um, subjects. And I know the EEF will will I think be launching more and more research about cognitive science in um, in other subjects, in other age ranges and what it best looks like in, in those kind of different areas. But yeah, it is an ongoing thing. So at the moment we're relying on teachers and school leaders looking at the kind of theory and then thinking, right, well, what might this look, look, look like in this subject? What I would say there is, if you're just starting out, is loads of reviews from teachers who, who have been using these practices for a certain number of years. You know, what does whole class verbal feedback look like in English? What does it look like in art? What does modeling look like in languages? What does it look like in maths etc etc so there's there's examples of kind of um good practice that you can find and teachers that have found these strategies to be effective in their teaching and then it's always thinking what might that look like for me for my learners for my class for my subject yeah so there is very much a call to action really at the moment for teachers to just have a go isn't there and sort of like think about it for themselves and and how they're going to apply it to their practice but then share it you know this is what's worked this is what hasn't uh, this is what i'm going to do differently and maybe make that a bit of a, a bigger conversation outside of their own classroom yeah i'd say you know talk about that with your subject colleagues or your year group colleagues as much as you can get on twitter get writing a blog you know share share as much as you can and uh, i think that's that's definitely been shown to be how we are going to improve as a profession fantastic yeah definitely um so inevitably you are good. I know we mentioned we, we did touch on this before as well, but um, there's there's inevitably going to be um, teachers in schools who might be a bit stuck in their ways, and it, and and this is this is at at every level of this, at every level of, of this implementation, it's going to involve change at some level. And of course, human beings as a rule, we don't really like change. So, um, what's the what's the advice for for kind of approaching staff who maybe do take that approach of no, you know, I've done this the same way for 20 years, I think it works, I don't see the need to change, you know, how do we overcome those barriers? Yeah, really good question. I think one that certainly if you're thinking about leading a department or leading teaching and learning across your school, you'll probably have in your mind, you know, how am I going to deal with these staff that I know aren't going to want to make any changes for whatever reason? Mm. I think, first of all, it's about how you introduce evidence informed teaching. So being clear what it is, as in it is these best bets from research but it also takes account of experience and context and making sure that you're not saying to teachers, you have got to do five five um, questions at the start of your um, lesson, every lesson, because that obviously doesn't fit into some lessons, doesn't fit into some subjects, etc. but just more giving the, them, them autonomy to choose, explaining why these things have been shown to be best bets, what research supports them, making sure they've got a really good understanding of the cognitive science model of memory of um, desirable difficulties, of the difference between learning and performance, those kind of building blocks to why we then start realising that these best bets are likely to be most effective. So I think that that's one thing. I think it's explaining why you want to change things. So if you're introducing retrieval practice or, um, I don't know, verbal feedback, or you want to look at your question techniques, why is it that you're doing that? What outcomes are you hoping to achieve? What weaknesses are you building on? All that kind of thing. Being really clear about the research that supports it. So when we first started introducing evidence-informed practice in my school, we, we used to do whole school briefings and we'd say, oh, this the evidence shows this, this, this and this. And we might refer to one or two kind of pieces of evidence. Um, and I might have read 10 studies about something 
refer to one of them. And actually, I think it's really important to be really clear on lots of the evidence that supports each thing, because then it, it's more credible, isn't it? If you can say, right, well, there was this study done, this is the experiment that was done, these were the results that were found, there was this study done, this is what the results found, and that gives much more credibility. Um, I think then it's about um, asking teachers just to try so when we first launched retrieval practice for example we just said right you know this is what it is this is how it works etc these are some of the things that you might want to try in your teaching have a go see what works so it's again it's done in that kind of um non-judgmental you, you're not um enforcing really specific practices on people but just telling them to have a go with it and see what they can do getting teachers to engage with research themselves as much as possible i think really helps um, and then I think the other thing that's really important is that you stand up and say, right, these are our priorities. These are the things that we're working on. And we are going to be working on these things for the next two or three years. And we're not going to be introducing anything else at that time. I think a lot of the time teachers are reluctant to change because, you know, they might have had five initiatives in the last year, one on homework, one on behaviour, one on teaching and learning, another one on mm. teaching and learning. It's too much. And then that all gets forgotten about. So they work really hard to get in line with these new kind of initiatives. And then the next year, we've got five more and, and what you were meant to be doing isn't embedded yet, but you've kind of forgotten about it. So actually, it's really important to keep those priorities and be really clear. We are going to keep these priorities for the next two or three years until they're fully embedded. They're really important to us. They're really important to teaching and learning. So this is what we all need to work towards and then stick to that. Even if you are tempted to kind of introduce other things as you go, you've got to resist and think, no, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to just concentrate on what we've said we're going to concentrate on. Right. So so. Do you actually think that it is it would take that long is that's the sort of recommended time period you know if you were really going to look at you know one or two things like retrieval practice and say space learning um is that what you would recommend like commit to it for two or three years before you yeah. even do anything else yeah not 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 maybe one thing so we've got four priorities at my school at the moment right. we've had that this is our third year with them as our um four the four things that we are are wanting to see in teaching and that we're, and that we're trying to work on now obviously there's loads of other things that you want to work on at the same time but you cannot do everything so you've got to pick those things and then yeah. i think um you know if you want teachers to really understand refine and embed these practices in their teaching that is going to take you a minimum of two years i can't see how it could take any less you can't do training on on an aspect of teaching and learning for one half term and then think that that's it and everyone's there going to therefore going to be really good at that thing for the for the next mm. you know forever um we've got to revisit we've got to build we've got to refine um and i think that does take that that kind of long time period right and in the absence of formal observations like you said which which sounds absolutely common sense you know you don't want people to feel like they're being tested and judged on these things but how do you as somebody who coordinates this i suppose how how do you check that teachers are trying you know like this idea yeah. of making sure that kind of everyone's sort of on board at least giving it a go yeah so we don't do formal lesson observations we never go in we've got nothing linked to our performance management we don't grade um the quality of teaching or anything like that but we do drop into lessons all the time and we go and see are people using retrieval practice are they doing it most effectively is there an element of retrieval that we need to look at are people using um whole class verbal feedback whatever it is that your you know that make up your teaching and learning priorities is it being done is it being doing being done well do you need to give some additional cpd in, in an area all that kind of thing um, and then i think it's about chatting to pupils chatting to pupils chatting to sorry teachers chatting to middle leaders and saying 
what does this priority look like in your subject area? Why does it look like that? Is that the same across all of your teachers or does everyone take a different approach? Are you kind of improving your knowledge of what's actually going on in your school as much as possible? So you can use things like student voice and, yeah, and but like I think that. I think so you can use the same techniques as people probably use now. You can go and look at books and that kind of thing, but you're not doing it in a judgmental way. You're doing it in a what's going on on the ground, what are we doing really well, what do we need to work yeah. on, and everything has got that focus. It hasn't got a, well, I'm going to come and tell you that you're in trouble because you haven't done this yeah. strategy or I didn't see this strategy or there's no evidence of this. It's yeah. not that. It's it's all kind of all pulling together and all de developmental which comes back to what you were saying before about culture and sort of establishing that you know we're, we're all pulling in the same direction we all want yes. the same things so it's just about how how are we all doing how are we getting on how are we coping what does it look like in science versus english versus history you know and, and sharing what's going on around the school yeah exactly that fantastic right great um so i know you said you need to get off shortly so i hope i hope um so if, if I can just just finish off with this question, because this is something that, that I've been really interested to know and, and I thought you would be a great person to ask is, what's your opinion of mastery programmes in school? Um, because I've come across one <laughs> and I, I can see that it's based in evidence, but it seems to be a really difficult way of, of putting, it, putting it into practice. So what's your opinion on them, first of all? So do you, what do you mean by a mastery programme? It's the one thing that I, when you sent me, you, uh, right, okay. <laughs> I was like, what does she mean? What yeah. do you mean? Do you well, mean like math mastery? Well, I, I t the, obviously my experience is only in, English, in the English version of this. But again, I did some supply work in a school who had a mastery programme in place for their English and it was Key Stage 3. Um, and basically it was education by booklet. Every student had a booklet for each of the topics that they were going to discuss over the course of the year. And the school essentially had, um, they, they had you know six topics that they were gonna cover in year seven, eight and nine, but they would be studying those topics simultaneously. So on a Monday, they'd do grammar. On a Tuesday, they would do poetry. On a Wednesday, they would do the novel. On a Thursday, they would do writing skills or something like that. And they would do that every week. Hmm. week in week out so and then obviously the, the students would have a booklet that went with that yeah um and there was no deviation from the booklet you know that is what every student was received yeah. okay so, so what do you think a couple of things so i think in terms of learning different things on different day that that would be more linked i suppose to interleaving at a curriculum level mm. where you're not studying romeo and juliet for six weeks and then poetry for six weeks and then something else that you're actually um, mixing up what you learn um which i think is uh, it i think is fine i think pupils adapt to doing different subjects in different days and different time you know it's secondary school and and they they seem to be fine and it might be a desirable difficulty it helps to space because obviously you're you're not doing a six-week block you're doing one week then one week then one week so i understand that in terms of booklets so booklets have got um, really different views. I think there's a group of people who feel they're really inflexible, that they uh, mean you can't adapt your lessons. And I think there's a, uh, a group of people who think actually they mean that it, everything's really consistent and that um, you know, everything's organised for you. Um, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I like a booklet because it means you don't have to stand at the photocopier every morning because it's yeah. all been done at the start. So in terms of workload, that's, that's nice. 
I like that it gives pupils one big resource to, to use rather than scraps of paper that they've got to stick in their exercise book or that they put into a folder in the wrong order and that kind of thing. Um, but I think that if you're using a booklet, there's probably got to be space for flexibility, as in actually the class didn't get this, I need to reteach it, so I need to give out a new worksheet and that can just go into their booklet and that's absolutely fine. Or, God, they've flown through this, they're absolutely fine, I'm going to miss the next couple of pages and we're going to go on to the bigger task instead. So I think as long as you kind of use them flexibly, I think probably never allowing flexibility is where that kind of lack of autonomy for teachers and lack of context comes in. Yeah, because I suppose that that was my experience of it was it it was like and again everything was pitched at the same level. So having come out of my training at a school where everything was about the differentiated learning objectives and then into a school where they just had one learning objective which was this is the the pages of the booklet that we are going to study today and the expectation was you would just go through them faithfully um does that work you know is is that because because one of the things i've been looking at recently is this idea of behaviorist and constructivist and the different sort of getting that balance between the two um you know the teacher-led versus letting students figure things out and conceptualize things how do we get that level of conceptualization if we are if, if it's sort of the booklet is focused on giving them information? Yeah, so I think, I think definitely I would say that when you initially give information to pupils, explicit instruction in whatever format, and that might be you telling them something or using a booklet, then reading something, whatever, is, is probably the best way. But mm -hmm. that we've got to them when their knowledge about a subject develops and they might become what we would now call more expert learners, you then do the kind of discovery process where they do get to look at, um, you know, do experiments or investigations or whatever else for themselves. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a one first then followed by the other and, I, and again with booklets I think it's probably really good to have a structure and to have agreed resources and it limits workload and all that kind of thing mm. but then you've also got to allow for uh, you know to the for the teacher to bring something topical in that they found or to do something different with this class because they need it whether that be to stretch some learners more or to support some learners more so I think it's just got to be um, used with used flexibly basically. Yeah so it should form a framework rather yes, than exactly. the the entire lesson if that makes sense yeah exactly yeah that, yeah oh no that that's great yeah because it, it's it's yeah it was just one of those things that I've not seen any other school do it and it, it's it's a school that's got a reputation you know a really great reputation for producing good results um so it's just one of those well if it if it works that well why isn't everybody doing it but <laughs> you know one of those but I, it, it looks like a, a great amount of effort to actually put it into place as well so there might be that kind of you know yeah, I think Bar it's an workload initial, barrier. <laughs> yeah, an initial workload to then have less workload in the future. Yeah, fantastic. Right, so if just finishing off then, because I know you've got to get away. So, um, what 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 is your um, sort of advice that you would give to uh, teachers? You know, who who are listening to this, you're thinking, yeah, this sounds like a really good idea. This is what I want to do. Where's what's what's the first thing they need to do after they um, switch off this radio show tonight? So if I'm assuming most people who are on the radio listen to the radio show are already on Twitter, but if you're not, then get on Twitter and start following some people in your subject. And then I think it's just about finding out initially what's out there, what what are the resources that you can use to become evidence informed, whether that be, you know, books, papers, blogs people to follow on Twitter that kind of thing and then I think it's choose something that you think is going to make a difference to your teaching and then have a go have a go at implementing it in your own teaching and, and see how it works 
That's brilliant. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Jade. And, and obviously an, an hour and seven minutes has just flown by <laughs> completely. So um, I really appreciate the, the time you've given us this evening. And thank you so much for um, imparting so much wisdom. And, and you've, you've helped me massively. I've, I've got a page full of scribbled notes here, I can tell you. So <laughs> that, that's, that's me sorted for the week ahead. So enjoy the rest of your evening and all the very best. And um, obviously when the book comes out, that will be on Twitter as well, won't it? That'll yes, be all, it will, yeah, yeah. Promoted all over there. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So okay. thanks. Thanks again. Thanks. All the best. Bye. Bye. So there we go. That was Jade. Well, I hope you've really enjoyed that. I mean, I got so much out of that. There was just so much there that, um, I mean, Jade, Jade was speaking really quickly <laughs> and it's a good job because we we covered, I think we covered so much ground there. Um, but just sort of some reflections from of, of my own experience here. You know, I've, I've got, like I, say, I said earlier, I'm, I'm a member of a teaching and learning group and I'm, you know, no criticism because I thoroughly enjoy being in that group um, and uh, talking through things and about what's going on around the school and, and what we think needs to, to to sort of change in the way we approach things. Um, but there, there is very much a, an element from from some teachers who are in the group that they don't feel that they've got the option to implement things that they know to be effective from the research because of barriers in their department. So for instance, there, there is a teacher um, who, uh, who who is in the our teaching and learning department and, and they've got um, a head of department who is sort of quite reluctant to do anything different. Um, and I suppose if you've got somebody been, who's been working for the school for a long time and who probably has a reputation as an effective teacher otherwise they wouldn't have made it to head of department in the first place um if they've got things that they uh apps you know they swear by and they do the same things because they believe they, they genuinely believe that that is the best way for them to teach it can constitute quite a, a serious shift to introduce something that is potentially new um and different and uh, encourage them to do something in a different way but I think as Jade said it's not necessarily new it might it, it's probably likely that everything that that teacher was is doing probably ties in at some level to the research anyway it's just about how can we tweak it and how can we um, make sure that the things we're already doing are the most effective we're doing them in the most effective way so I suppose a good way of looking at it would be rather than introducing it as something new is to introduce it as well this is things that we're already doing but are we doing them to the best possible you know it um in the best possible way and i think again i think it was tom sherrington who said it, it's the it's when you're approaching this it's about it's not about good teaching versus bad teaching it's about effective teach more effective teaching versus less effective teaching so it's not that they're doing anyone's doing a bad job or that anyone's necessarily doing a better job than somebody else it's just what is are we doing things in the most effective way are we um, translating the research correctly and accurately in a way that definitely helps our students um, I think the the point Jay made about SLT needing to share their 
um, CPD and their own areas for improvement. I think that's a fantastic idea because that I think any any manager is reluctant to show weakness to a certain extent because it's it's almost like they they want they need they feel the need because they're in a leadership role they feel the need to um, be an example to their staff regardless of the industry they're in and so turning around to say well actually this is something that I don't feel I'm particularly good at or I could be more effective in or stronger in and this is what I'm working on that might be um, anathema to, to some teachers because it all because it, it's it's almost like suggesting that they're not doing their job as well as they could but actually I think we need to shift that perspective and think that at the end of the day SLT if they are also teaching they are peers when it comes to classroom practice we're all peers it doesn't matter what our job title is or what subject that we focus on or um, what responsibilities we have we're all teachers first and foremost and we must never stop learning and we should never stop learning so if SLT turn around and say yeah I'm, I'm looking into some CPD on this because I feel that I have this particular challenge in my classroom that I want to be better at or I think this could be you know I've, I've done this over and over again but actually I've come to question if it's the best and most effective way of doing this thing then that I think would be inspirational rather than counterproductive to a lot of staff and just shows that SLT understand the challenges that the that their fellow teachers are facing because they're going through them at the same time. So any SLT listening out there, there's there's uh, the takeaway from the show. There's the advice. But a whole school approach is is must be essential because whilst individual teachers might have some a certain amount of autonomy in their own classroom to implement things that they have um, they've been researching and and see how those things work improving their own knowledge on an individual level I imagine it would get quite frustrating um, for those sort of proactive uh, individuals who who are constantly seeking to be better and seeking to improve practice but who feel that they are they're then hitting a, a ceiling they can only do so much and and um they're not getting that support and that buy-in from the school as a whole so yeah it, it's but but things are never going to change unless um we change them you know unless individual teachers do you know uh, implement some of these new things and who try them and then take them out of the classroom and say look here's what I've been doing this is working really well can we have a can we talk about this oh I've got a caller so um yeah hello just waiting for the connection there yes hello, hello. hi there yeah. how can I help um, I'm Robin, sir. hi hi Robbie what's your question uh, hi that's a question can I get a job over there in Kenya Right, I think that was a, a little bit of a of a random caller there. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, we're not we're not uh, we're not recruiting. I'm not a recruiter at the moment. I have no control over the jobs that we have available in our school. I'm sorry. Um, 
yeah right so on that note um and i've just realized what time it is so i am going to pause in my um, musings and play the uh, adverts and the news again live from cumbria this is the twilight show with kaylee clark This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the Times Educational Supplement, schools are struggling to create the collegiate environment required for recovery post-pandemic, as a result of the top-down pressure experienced by school leadership teams. Results of a new survey show that one-third of teachers cite management issues in schools as the reason most likely to lead them to quitting the profession, along with pay and working conditions. CEO of the Chartered College Alison Peacock has called for more support for teachers as a response to this survey. She warned, education recovery will only occur if teachers and leaders 
are provided with necessary support. General Secretary of the NAS UWT Teaching Union, Dr Patrick Roach, said, The government must do more to tackle adverse and bullying management practices in schools. Teacher wellbeing is vital to securing the country's education recovery after the pandemic. The survey of 4,690 teachers was carried out by TeacherTap on behalf of BET UK. In Ethiopia, Education Minister Beranu Nega announced that the conflict unleashed by the Tigray People's Liberation Front has seriously affected the access to schools of more than 3 million students in the areas invaded since June. More than 1,200 schools have been completely destroyed due to the war, while three universities in Amara State were totally or partially damaged by the Tigrayan forces. The rebuilding of these institutions will cost in the region of $2 million. In Kenya, the Education Cabinet Secretary, Professor George Magoa, has voiced his hope that vocational and technical training in the country will be strengthened to help with the country's economic development. Magoa said the demand for plumbers, electricians, technicians and artisans was rising, challenging learners to take advantage of the demand and acquire the necessary skills to fill up the gaps. He said, we must tell our people that every job is important. At technical and vocational education and training institutions, you can develop skills that can address an existing problem in the community and in turn secure employment. We must move away from the examination orientated system and impart skills in our learners to ensure that they are competent to face the workforce. The government has rolled out an annual 2 billion Kenyan shilling conditional grant to vocational training colleges to boost enrolment. This has been your weekend Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, today I'm responding to a tweet from Michelle Stevens at m underscore Stevens zero, pointing out to at Team English one that a lot of people don't know about the snipping tool, and she was compiling a list of shortcuts. The thread sparked a lot of fantastic responses and inspired today's Two Minute Tech. Today I present Getting Snippy With It. In Windows, a simple shortcut combo of Windows plus Shift plus S opens the snipping tool. The snipping tool is like an advanced version of print screen. After the combo key press, a small menu appears giving you five options. Rectangle select, which is 
draw a box around what you want. Freeform select, which is draw a shape around what you want. Window select, which is pick the window you want to capture. Screen select, which captures the full screen or replication of the print screen button. Some may say there's no point to this, but stay tuned. There is. Finally, there's a cross to close and pressing escape can do the same thing. If you have an interactive board, you can pin, snip and sketch to your taskbar. Right click the icon and select pin to taskbar. Now you can press it to make screen grabs and not have to go over to the keyboard. Snip and sketch also gives you the ability to annotate on a screenshot. To make this even more powerful, did you know pressing Windows and V shows your last 25 captures to your clipboard? The first time you use this, you'll need to switch on the feature by pressing Windows and V and agreeing to switch it on. Now you can take several screen captures and then paste them into the app you're presenting with. This can be very time efficient. For this week's visual version of the episode, I've made a series of clips and given some real life examples of using the snipping tool. So don't forget to check out TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your Tech Briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I think I was determined to have a technical problem at some point this evening. I clicked the wrong button, so I apologise for that. So, um, on reflection, I think Jade has pretty much said everything that needed to be said about the subject tonight. So I hope um, you uh, have enjoyed the show, and I hope that um, if you're listening to this as a podcast later in the week or um, you know catching up on it because you were unable to join, then I hope it's been, um, I'm sure, in fact, never mind, I hope, I'm sure, it has been really educational and it's given you some really practical advice for how to take this forward in your practice, how to become more evidence-informed, individually but also what you can do in school and and why it's important that we now start to think about the reasons why we do things and how we can make sure that we're doing things as well as we possibly can as teachers and I do apologize if you heard that little chorus of yowling in the background um my dogs are downstairs and um apparently it's dinner time (laughs) so I do apologize for that uh, little musical interlude but enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening. For those of you who have who are just coming to the end of your half term, I hope you are feeling refreshed and ready to go again tomorrow. We I've already been back a week, so it's just another Monday um, for me tomorrow. But gosh, it's felt like a long week this week. I don't know what what it what it was, but it it seemed like the longest first week of term that I've gone through so far. I don't know why. Maybe they're just going to start getting longer until until we get to the end of the school year. I don't know. Um, it's all new to me, so I don't know what to expect. So at this point, ignorance is bliss. But uh, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Hope you really enjoyed it. And I'm going to sign off um, for now. So in the morning, um, we've got Tabitha on the breakfast show at seven o'clock. And we've also got... Um, a show coming up after me. I think it's Tom this evening. Um, so I hope you enjoy the rest of the program we've got for you this week. Have a great week coming up and we will see you next time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.